Welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, and this week I'm going to be talking about Brazil, India, Germany, and, well, let's be honest, I'm going to be talking a shit ton about the United States. Uh, my See You in Hell, that's a celebration of a dead fascist, is also about the United States from the 1930s. Starting out with some quick news tidbits, there have been several disruptions and threats carried out by fascist organizations, namely the Proud Boys, at group reading events. Specifically, these are reading events held at public libraries. The ones that they are disrupting are ones in which queer people are reading to children. One of these events was most recently disrupted in Wilmington, North Carolina, although there has been a trend of these kinds of disruptions and threats of violence for quite some time. Moving on to some of the smaller news tidbits in the rest of the world, Germany has finally abolished a Nazi-era law regarding advertising abortion. Previously, according to this law, which was passed during the Nazi era, abortion was illegal to advertise, and people could be criminally prosecuted for providing information about access to abortion. This was repealed only last week, some days before Roe v. Wade was overturned in the United States. Tucker Carlson, the prominent right-wing talking head, media personality, and propagandist in the United States, is in Brazil this week making a documentary about Jair Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil and extreme right-wing figure, erstwhile ally of Donald Trump, former United States president. Tucker Carlson is interested in knitting together an impression of an international right-wing sort of ecosphere, right? You know, an, an international right-wing consensus. Bolsonaro and Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, are important characters in this impression, so that's why Carlson is there. He's also trying to shore up Americans' impression of Brazil, that is, Bolsonaro's Brazil, right-wing Brazil, as an ally against the Communist Party, and Bolsonaro's opponent in the upcoming Brazilian election, Lula de Silva, as a sort of tool of the Chinese Communist Party. In India, there was a recent beheading attack in the city of Udaipur, which is in the northwestern part of India. Two men, both Muslim, beheaded another man, who is a Hindu, over the Hindu man's support of a nationalist politician, a member of the BJP, the Hindu Nationalist Party that is the current ruling party in India. This nationalist politician was known for saying blasphemous things about the Prophet Muhammad, specifically regarding his first marriage. In the wake of these attacks, Hashtags like Defend Hindus or Hindus Under Attack were massively trending on Twitter. And there have been major rallies, not just in the city of Udaipur, but in the rest of the province that Udaipur is in, regarding potential major sectarian violence in India, which is the sort of thing that can spill out of control in a massively terrible way that results in huge loss of life, especially considering that the BJP is, as I've said, a majorly Hindu nationalist organization that would potentially support, or at least like, you know, if it came to blows, it would be on the side of the Hindu nationalists. Turning finally to the United States, which is where we're going to be spending most of our time in this episode, I'm going to start by talking about first the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and finally the explosive reports coming from the January 6th committee. There's, a, there's just a shit ton of crazy stuff happening in the United States. Last Friday, the Supreme Court issued its decision that Roe v. Wade would be overturned. Roe v. Wade, of course, is the 
ruling from the Supreme Court that said that abortion is legal in the United States or in its entirety, that abortion is not up to the states. I would suggest that you seek out other sources and analysts for uh, a lot of the ins and outs of this decision and its process. Uh, I am not an expert in reproductive health or reproductive rights advocacy. I will be talking about how this relates to right-wing power and organizing. Specifically, just to make sure that we all know, this result, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, is the culmination of decades of organizing and planning by the right wing, starting not, you know, in the 90s, not in the 80s, in the 70s and 60s. This is when the seeds of this decision were planted, with the right wing's turn against, for example, the Equal Rights Amendment, the right wing's turn against gay liberation, the whole culture war concept. This is the culmination of the right wing's organizing. It's extremely successful organizing in order to prevent the power of the left and of social democracy and of queer rights, all sorts of things. You know, that this is the culmination of decades of work. We must also note that Justice Clarence Thomas, in his concurring opinion, which is a, a sort of minority supplemental opinion, but, you know, it's not the actual minority opinion. He, he concurred with the majority of the justices. He went out of his way, sort of unnecessarily, I guess, as a threat, to note that the reasoning that the court used in order to overturn its decision on Roe v. Wade could be also used to overturn court cases like Obergefell v. Hodges, the case that makes queer marriage, same-sex marriage, legal in the entirety of the United States. It could be used to overturn the court cases that got rid of anti-sodomy laws that are used to target homosexual men specifically and queer people in general. It could be used to overturn court cases that enable people to access contraception if they are married. He did not say that it could potentially be used to overturn the court cases that made miscegenation laws, that is, laws that prevent or try to prevent the intermarriage between people of different races illegal, although it conceivably could be too. Again, this is the result of a long and successful effort to change the minds of people in the United States, to install powerful justices into powerful positions, and to seize judicial power and legislative power in the United States in order to legislate an extremely conservative Christian agenda. I know that you don't really need to hear me say that, that's pretty obvious, but it's important to remember when we think about what it's going to take in order to fight back against this power. The right has been organizing in this way for decades, and it is that level and longevity of organizing work that will be necessary in order to stop them. This isn't something that can be stopped in a month. It's not something that can be stopped in a year. It's not something that can be stopped in the next election cycle. It's going to take a long time and a lot of work. Speaking of a long time and a lot of work, the January 6th committee has gotten its hands full in the last couple of weeks. They've uncovered a lot of incredible information. Uh, they've gotten a lot of crazy fucking testimony. And yeah, their most recent testimony this Tuesday was uh, pretty astonishing. Going to start out with what we learned previously. Last week, uh, we knew that they seized... Eastman's phone, Eastman being a lawyer who worked for Trump, who planned some of the coup legality stuff. We know that they're searching the home of Jeff Clark, another former DOJ official. We also now know that several members of Congress, including Matt Gates, Mo Brooks, Biggs, Perry, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, requested pardons from Donald Trump for their involvement in a December meeting 
planning the coup. You know, a, a December meeting that was going to be like, hey, we're going to try to contest the election results. We think that we might be able to win, right? So they requested pardons for this. They requested pardons from Donald Trump. Just as a reminder, you can only receive a pardon, a presidential pardon in the United States, if you admit guilt. So these people are saying like, hey, I'm willing to admit that I did a crime in order to get pardoned for it. We also now know, as per Tuesday's recent testimony, that Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's chief of staff, and Rudy Giuliani also sought pardons. Again, reminding you that that means that they think that they were probably guilty of a crime, or at least that a court would find them guilty of a crime. We also know that Trump pressed the Department of Justice to work with him to overturn the election results, uh, which is illegal. You know, that's, that's definitely not allowed. But the big bombshell news that came from the January 6th committee came on Tuesday, January 28th, with the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson. Hutchinson was a former staffer for Mark Meadows, again, Donald Trump's chief of staff, at the end of his presidency and during the coup itself. And she said some shit. I mean, like, just like crazy crap about what was happening during the Trump administration, especially at the end. The most sensationalized piece of her testimony and, you know, the sort of thing that's getting made into memes and stuff is that we now know that Donald Trump tried to go to the Capitol building after his speech to the rally that became the, you know, the invasion of the Capitol building. He was trying to go there to join the rioters, you know, to join the fascists invading the Capitol building to prevent the inauguration or rather, you know, the, the counting of the electoral votes of his opponent. He was told by the Secret Service that he couldn't do that. And outraged, he lunged for the wheel of his vehicle and also for his driver's throat. Um, the person driving this car was not just like some member of the Secret Service. He was actually the head of security on that day. These events have been the biggest meme to come out of the hearings. You know, uh, people on the left being terrified that the president became so unhinged. People on the right, especially the extreme right, you know, we're talking Nick Fuentes, these kinds of people, like young fascists, love that the president lunged for the wheel. Their meme is, you know, about the president sticking his hand, holding a gun out the window and saying, I'm the fucking president. You know, they're, they're enamored of this. We also know, as per Hutchinson's testimony, that Trump knew the mob that he had sent to the Capitol was armed and violent. He even specifically arranged for the security around the Capitol building to be relaxed in order to enable them to enter, right? He was conspiring clearly in order to make it possible for this armed, violent group of people to enter the Capitol building and threaten or literally endanger the lives of members of Congress and also his sitting vice president. He knew that they were specifically threatening the life of Vice President Mike Pence and liked that, you know, he said that they're not targeting him, the president, they're targeting other people, people who deserve it. We also know that Donald Trump got the Secret Service to plan how he might enter the Capitol building. Uh, this is prior to them refusing to take him in, right? He, we, we now know that Donald Trump got the Secret Service to plan how to get the president into the Capitol building during his coup, which means that he got the Secret Service to plan how to circumvent the plans of the Capitol Police another branch of the federal government, another security apparatus in the United States. They were planning how to operate against each other. Now, this is the sort of thing that, you know, in the Pentagon or in like war colleges in the Army and Navy and stuff, yeah, they have war games like this. You know, what, what would happen if one branch of the military got compromised or something? But this isn't a war game. This is literally the president was like, I want you to draw up a plan for how you might get me into this secure building 
tomorrow. Uh, that's cool stuff. It, 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 it can't get more obvious than that. We also know, and this is one of the things that people aren't focusing too much on, which, which I think is a, a terrible mistake. We now know a little bit more about the command structure surrounding the developments on January 6th. We have a little bit more clarity about who was talking to whom, specifically what the line between Trump and the fascists was. And it turns out that it's a, it's a lot shorter than you might have thought. We know specifically that while Trump, we have no evidence that he spoke to any of the leaders of these fascist organizations, although it remains to be seen exactly what the video footage of these six hours of you know, supposedly zero phone calls when Trump was obviously using burner phones. We don't know what that's going to uncover. But we know that Donald Trump, up until the coup and on January 6th itself, was speaking with Rudy Giuliani and Roger Stone. And we know that Roger Stone specifically was talking to the fascists, to the point that they were even escorting him, like they were his official bodyguards. We're talking about Oath Keepers here specifically, uh, on January 6th. This isn't a game of telephone. This is a command structure right? This is the president of the United States having one guy between him and the leader of one of the most violent, terrifying fascist organizations in the United States at the time, the Oath Keepers. Hutchinson's testimony came as a surprise. It was sudden. It was on a different day than most of the hearings have been held, which is Thursdays. It was held on a Tuesday. This is clearly in part because they didn't want her to get cold feet and also because she had credible threats against her life. This person risked her life in order to testify against the committee. I'm not trying to say that she's a hero. She was involved in all of this, right? You know, she heard all this shit on January 5th, didn't tell anybody about it, waited until now. I know that she was probably intimidated. She almost certainly was. She was almost certainly threatened for, you know, her involvement in this, for for saying that she was going to testify against the committee. I don't know what her life is going to be like now. It'll probably be extremely hard. But, you know, I'm glad that we know um, but I would be reluctant and would challenge anybody who calls her a hero for testifying because of her involvement in a coup that, that you know, now she's talking about her involvement in this coup. Finally, going to close out this episode as I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. Sticking with the United States this week, we're talking about William Pelly, the founder of the Silver Shirts. William Pelley was born in Massachusetts in 1890. He was a journalist and a writer, uh, and then joined the anti-communist white Russian fighters who opposed the Bolsheviks in the Russian Revolution. There he became an anti-Semite and an anti-communist, which was the guiding ideology that he held throughout the rest of his life. After he returned to the United States in the 1920s, he moved to Hollywood and became a screenwriter, uh, as well as a regular writer, you know, sort of like adapting his uh, little magazine stories for Hollywood scripts. And he actually has a pretty substantial filmography from this. Pelly's other passion, in addition to anti-Semitism and anti-communism, was the occult, UFOs. Uh, he had a number of extra-dimensional, you know, extraterrestrial experiences that he talked about that, as was common at the time and also today, linked experiences with extraterrestrials and, you know, divine connections with Jesus and God. He is most famous, however, for founding the Silver Legion, aka the Silver Shirts, who are called such because their uniforms were silver shirts. This is in keeping with a long tradition established by the Black Shirts, Mussolini's fascist paramilitary organization, in which fascist organizations are often known by the color of their shirts, so the Nazis wear the brown shirts, 
the Americans were the silver shirts, the Brazilian integralists were the green shirts, etc. Pelle founded the Silver Legion the day after Hitler took power in Germany, so that's January 1st, 1933. He held rallies and recruitment meetings across the United States and actually got some serious traction through the mid-1930s. He ran for president in 1936, but failed abysmally. He preached a form of Christian nationalism, anti-Semitic fascism, militarism, anti-communism. His uh, title in the organization was the chief, uh, you know, the corresponding to figure to Der Führer in the Nazi party. He remained anti-FDR with the decline of the Silver Legion in the late 1930s. Uh, you know, he was an isolationist. He opposed the war. He opposed anybody who opposed the Nazis. Although he did disband the Silver Legion finally in 1941 with the attack on Pearl Harbor. He was, during the war, during World War II, charged with treason and sedition for his activities in support of fascism and served an eight years of a 15-year sedition sentence. After this, he retired to Indiana and was forced to stay outside of politics. He continued to write on the themes of esotericism and UFOs until his death on June 30th, this day in history, 1965. So, William Pelly, we'll see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe, leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on, tell your friends, family, and comrades about it. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. That's also where you can reach me on G- on Gmail, uh, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I can also be reached on Twitter at hist of the right, H-I-S-T of the right on Twitter or at fascism 15. Uh, and again, that's 15 spelled out. All right. Thanks. And I'll talk to you next week.